0: You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set out to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 397. I'm your host, Andrés Pinter, and joining me for the show is my co-host, Pontus Böckmann. See ya! Hey, son, hey, son. Yeah. And we were recording from a um, hotel room in the city of Manchester in the UK just after the weekend of QED 2023. And unfortunately, even though Annika is in the same building, yeah. she couldn't make it. She came down with a, with a, with yes. a terrible cold or, or some kind of illness mm. with the whole family. The whole That's family terrible,
1: is feeling not well. So. Uh, Well, it's nothing serious. It's just a cold. But uh, yeah, anyway, too bad.
0: Yeah, it is. So unfortunately, it's just the two of us now. Mm -hmm. But we have had a wonderful time. Yeah, first of all. I mean, QED it doesn't disappoint. Ne- never <laughs> does, never
1: does. So, so this is the Monday after QED, we should yeah, say. Yeah. We're, We're uh, uh, we just too. had our breakfasts. We are on our way to the airport soon to go back to our respective places. Yep. And, but QED is, as always fantastic. I told Marsh that, uh, even though we say this every year, this year was the best QED ever. <laughs> I don't know how they can top it every year. And, and, and this time, somehow actually, they manage. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. And, and they really had a little bit of bad luck this year, anyway. Yeah. The speaker got sick, and they had to make some like last-minute rearrangements. But doesn't matter. It's all good. So uh, for us as the audience, you know what? I've got an idea.
0: Mm-hmm. I recorded an interview
1: with Marsh. Yeah. Why don't we
0: listen to what he had to say about it? <laughs> yes, let's do that. Okay. Uh, with, uh, QED 2023 now officially over, I'm sitting down in one of the few quiet rooms in the building <laughs> with, uh, well, um, I, should I say the chief, chief organiser of um, the QED or the head of the team, of no, the organising team? Not,
2: not even the head of the team. There is no head of the team. So uh, I'm one of the, the six people who do QED every year. Uh, so there's, there's myself, Michael Marshall, uh, there's Mike Hall and Andy Wilson and Rick Owen and uh, Nicola Throp and Alice Howarth. And the, the six of us all together put, uh, put this event on every year. And it's a fabulous event and a fabulous team that
0: you have here. So I'm sitting down here with Michael Marshall uh also known as marsh by many um so now the weekend is over every everyone is uh, clearing the rooms up and, and and everything how do you feel
2: um, I feel good I think it went well um, I think we, 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 we pulled it off um, it's one of these things it's what's the, the most exciting thing about QED is seeing all of the people uh, come from all over the world now uh, to come and do this to come along to this thing that they just trust us will be, will be worth it They'll be trust, that they trust us will be worth our ti- worth their time worth their money uh, people flew, we met people who flew in from America who got a passport for this event who'd never left the country before but wanted to come to QED I met a chap from Mexico who, who wanted to come for years and he was like I finally my wife was like just go you've wanted to come for so many years and it's just great that so many people are, are, are and, and yourself from Europe and lots of people from Europe come in it just becomes a, a, a nice such a lovely place where the, the, the community that we're trying to uh, to build and serve um, sort of re- meets back together and, uh, and, and reminds each other what we all seem like in person and how this is a, kind of a, a nice cohesive community really there have been a couple of
0: hiccups uh, like, like uh, last minute cancellation uh, by speakers and everything even though this uh, was the case the whole thing went super smoothly but it must have been pretty s- stressful for all of you so does this happen with every single event or this one was a little bit worse in that regard
2: um i think Every event is always going to have uh, unexpected occurrences and teething troubles and, and various other things uh, that you can't uh, you can't predict. I mean, this year at least there wasn't a fire alarm, there wasn't a full evacuation of the building. That's happened to us twice in <laughs> in uh, the previous nine years, and so from that respect at least this wasn't too bad. The the thing is something unexpected will always happen, and you don't know which unexpected thing it will be. So one year it might be you know some of your speakers pull out. Yeah, unfortunately some of our speakers just couldn't make it through. Absolutely no fault of their own. Um, some something them we knew a while ago, some of them we found out right, fairly close. And so... The responsibility or the, the way to handle that as an event organiser in a way that doesn't materially affect the event is to think, well, what could go wrong and how do I fix that? If this happens, what's our backup plan? If someone pulls out, who do we who do we talk to? And we normally have a few people in mind. So the, the reason that we can run a, run a thing smoothly, even though behind the scenes all sorts of unusual things happen, is because we try and plan for contingencies and things. And uh, because we try to sweat all the details um, as much as we can ahead of time, it means that hopefully it, you just don't notice it because when a bad thing when a, when a thing goes wrong we've got something to switch out and we've we've kind of thought about it already we're not surprised by we're surprised but not shocked maybe is the way to do it yeah not caught out
0: i can reassure you as um, a regular participant that uh, it's running so smoothly that we have the feeling that you have thought of everything <laughs> that could go wrong and uh, it's just run brilliantly so thank you very much for that. But I'd like to um, go to a different topic from here, uh, which was last night's Occam Awards. So um, as usual, you handed out the Occam Award and uh, the Rusty Vasa. So yeah. what can you tell us and our listeners about that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So every year we like to try to recognize the people in skepticism over the last year who've done something of real value, something that has really uh, promoted uh, the, the skeptical cause, and that's been uh, pushing forward of critical thinking and reasoning and pushing back against pseudoscience. And we like to try and award them uh, 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 the award for sceptical activism. And We normally do one, sometimes we do two of those awards a year. Um, and uh, and then we also hand out the opposite of that, which is called the Rusty Razor, which is for the biggest pseudoscientist of the year. Uh, so this year's Ockham Award for uh, sceptical activism went to the podcast Knowledge Fight um, because of the work that they've done in documenting the world of Alex Jones. And we had Dan Uh, Give a talk here at uh, QED Uh, and what I've found really interesting about their work and really important about their work is that we all know who Alex Jones is uh, but like so many of us only know him peripherally Um, and Dan pointed out in his talks like he's the guy that gets referenced in Spider-Man when J. Jonah Jameson becomes the, the ranting conspiracy theorist but like at the same time If you knew what Alex Jones actually says and what he actually believes and how close he is to like white supremacist ideology and putting forward incredibly bigoted talking points, like you would not be pastiching him uh, in media that is going to be like hugely mainstream and seen by millions of people. It's irresponsible to do that. You know, you wouldn't do that. I I would say you wouldn't do that with the leader of the KKK. Like, oh, here is someone who's uh, who's playing that kind of character. But Alex Jones gets a pass because people see him as like kooky and strange and like a bit odd but actually he's something much more serious than that. And so Dan's work in in actually listening to what Alex Jones says and, and making notes on it and putting together his worldview, pointing out where he has outright lied about things and being able to prove that Alex must have lied about this because he's, done, he's seen this article and he's added these words that are not in the article, I've found the actual article. So that kind of documenting has real value in proving um, just what influence he has. Uh, and we saw that the actual influence that uh, that this work has uh, it contributed to i think Dan was an expert witness in the in the, the defamation case by the, the victims of the Sandy Hook massacre uh, by their families rather um and that's obviously what Alex Jones has suffered a huge huge uh slice of accountability uh, for and and Dan played a role in that so in putting the hours in thousands of hours into documenting this incredibly important Part of the the, 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 the pseudoscience world uh, it 's just really great work and we 're very happy to be able to honor it um, and Then we come to the Rusty razor where we mm-hmm. try to find the person who has you know, the most who has been the most influential or prominent or or, or the person with the most potential for harm uh, in terms of pseudoscience over the last twelve months. Um, and we gave it this year to Dr. Asim Malhotra uh, and Asim Malhotra is a cardiologist he's a registered doctor, uh, a medical professional in the UK and he made his name um, l- through various things but one of the things that made it that, uh, that allowed him to gather quite a lot of attention and quite a lot of fame was he was a cardiologist who was arguing that statins should not be used by most people. So whilst, whilst most cardiologists would look at the evidence around statins and I think even the NHS recently suggested or nice I think it was, uh, the, the body within, the, within the, the English healthcare system suggested that the use of statins should be more broadly rolled out because it would be more beneficial to people. He actually argues that there's very few people actually get any benefit from statins um, and that most people, are they are frequently, he would say, um, associated with very serious side effects and a very serious like, damage to their health. So he made his name that way. Then he wrote a diet plan that he said would, uh, could ha- have the potential of saving 20 million lives a year from cardiovascular disease, which he claimed was based on a Mediterranean diet called the Pioppi diet. But actually, it was a zero carb or very low carb diet, which is not an Italian diet. Italians, it Italians eat carbs. They did pizza. They do they pasta. They've got that carb thing down. But the reason we really gave it to Asim Al-Hotra was that during the pandemic, he has been one of the most vocal and one of the most uh, visible critics of the COVID-19 vaccine, which he says is, uh, is responsible for all manner of, uh, of heart issues and other. And he frequently highlights when there are sudden unexpected deaths. Um, and he will say that this is a death of, of cardiac arrest or cardiac death or something to do with the heart here. Um, even when there's no evidence that that's the case, he's just immediately jumping on as best as possible as we can see and his half a million followers almost inevitably respond saying it's the vaccine that's done it And, and he's cultivated that audience and when I think one of his followers even said you know that's the clot shot and instead of saying the vaccine is not a clot shot. That is not how it works. He was like, well, we don't know what caused it, but yes, there is a lot of serious concerns right now. And he published a paper. Uh, he, actually, he went on BBC, uh, on the BBC News, and said that the uh, the tens of thousands of deaths that we're seeing from uh, excess deaths we're seeing cardiovascular issues at the moment are actually not cardiovascular issues per se. They're all side effects of the vaccine and he's incredibly influential uh, an, or a, uh, a member of parliament, Andrew Bridgen who stood up in parliament and started talking about how we need to stop the vaccine for, for COVID because of all the harm that it's doing. He talks about how meeting Asim al was one of the things that changed his mind on this and one of the things that made him think in this way. So we think Dr. Asim Hotra, the fact that he has half a million followers on Twitter, that he's in the media or has been in the media um, so much over the last five, six years on so many different topics, the media see him as a real expert and he's still to this day a registered medical professional um, and yet he's spreading uh, misinformation about the vaccine that could undermine the, the, the trust in the vaccine program. We just felt he was a, a very worthy winner of the Rusty Razor.
0: Yeah, I think um, the, the audience and, and everyone in the room uh, felt the same way about him getting the, the Rusty Razor. But yeah, this has been a wonderful weekend again. So um, looking forward to the next time, Mike Hall, towards the end of his uh, closing remarks very cautiously said see you next time. So I'm not going to ask you if there is a QED next year.
2: No, if we will announce in due course what will be happening. So uh, right now we just want to relax at the end of this one before we even think about doing all of this again. But we will,
0: yeah, we will definitely watch this space. Uh, and M- M- Marsh, thank you very much again uh, to the whole team for pulling this off. It's,
2: uh, it's our pleasure. It's, it's, we, we, we love doing this and we love the, uh, the, the way that the, the community responds to this. So the fact that you enjoyed it and lots of other people enjoyed it that's the, that's what we get out of this thank you very much and please go and get some rest <laughs> i will i'll do that right now <laughs> thank you
0: <laughs> okay and uh, yeah this is not the only interview that we recorded we have been running, running around Pontus and myself with a microphone. Well, we've had wonderful teachers when it comes to doing like on-the-fly inter- interviews. All right, we keep mentioning Richard Saunders and Maynard. <laughs> yes, <laughs> we are doing it their style. So, thanks for teaching us that of the Skeptic Zone fame. Mm. So, we have recorded a couple of interviews over the weekend because we thought that we should share that wonderful colorful kind of vibe that mm. that the whole event had. And speaking of which, I did have the kind of feeling that now that this year, that the focus was on equality and equal opportunities and all that from a skeptical point of view. So we've heard wonderful talks, both on Skepticamp mm. and on the main stage and the panels about how, for example, women tend to get less attention when it comes to real attention when it comes to medical practice. Mm. So like they they get diagnosed with real diseases much more rarely. They just get dismissed offhand because of being women and the whole profession of medicine and medicinal practice thinks that way still. So it's like there's some misogyny in there. We had a talk on that on Skepticamp and then Alice Howarth, one of the, the organizers that probably our listeners know as well, because she was on the show hmm. earlier. Uh, she gave a talk that touched on that as well. And I really appreciate that. Mm-hmm. What was your takeaway, main takeaway from the, from the weekend?
1: I, th- yeah, I think you're right. There, there was a little a different focus, perhaps. So sort of a theme going through with uh, a lo- lot of healthcare, but I think, uh, well, wow, there's so many things, but I, I did really enjoy the, placebo panel which was
0: basically a last
1: minute yes <laughs> that was one of the things <laughs> that they had to to rearrange but it was very good it was, it was really chris french Catherine de jong uh, michael of course and uh, also yeah. aaron rabinovich
0: yeah so we had um someone to cover the ethical angle of things as yeah. well yeah
1: And when we say they had to rearrange, they always have a plan B. This was always on the, in the books. If we have to cancel something, this is our plan B. And a plan B at QD is always yeah First it's, loss. it's yeah it's better than in
0: any other place <laughs> yeah so we've had lots of fun and uh, part of this was possible for us because of the generous support that we get from our listeners so um some of the expenses we could cover using the money that was uh, given to us so we'd like to thank everyone who supported us on patreon and uh, if you want to do that,
1: you can still do it. <laughs> yes, <laughs> go to patreon.com slash the ESP and see what you can do. Yeah, and partly as a thank you to all of you for listening and
0: for support, we would like to share a little bit of the experience that we've had by sharing the interviews that we recorded. Here we are at lunch break at QED 2023 and here with me is uh, Shayna Weiss and she gave a talk at Skepticamp that was about uh, misogyny or mental health, so basically psychological sexism. So this is your first time here, Shayna, isn't it?
3: Yeah, this is my first time at QED.
0: How do you like it so far?
3: I love it so much. It's great. I've met so many interesting people. I've had amazing conversations. Um, I enjoyed giving my talk, and that got really good feedback. So, and obviously, I've listened to loads of other really interesting talks. So I'm having a great time.
0: But uh, that was your first time at skepticamp as well, and you probably had to have a lot of courage to come up with a with an, um, a topic like that. But I hope you got a very nice surprise uh, in terms of the reactions.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, I was somewhat less nervous because I knew nobody here, because I've never been before. That's kind of exactly why I signed up to give a talk. Cause yeah, I, I don't, I don't usually talk in front of crowds. Um, but I thought something about not knowing anyone would make it a little bit easier. If I mess it up, I don't have to see anybody ever again. But, um, no, but I didn't mess it up and it was, it was really well received and I think it went well. So
0: you made a, a couple of very, very interesting and, and let me say shocking points as to how there is is a terrible inequality in the diagnosis of of certain illnesses and psychological conditions um, between women and men. So, can you tell us a little bit about that?
3: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different aspects to it. There's there's been a lot of critique of the DSM. That's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of, of Mental Health Disorders. Um, there's a DSM, and there's also the ICD, and the way that certain criteria for different mental health labels are gendered in nature. So they might have criteria such as inappropriate anger or uh, risk-taking behavior, both of which are things that might be more acceptable in men than in women, leading women ultimately to be diagnosed more with certain disorders than men are. So some of those disorders are like borderline personality disorder, histrionic personality disorder, which is also known as dramatic personality disorder, and yeah, it just has all sorts of criteria like being over emotional and uh, being attention seeking and things like that, which I think every woman knows is, is something that men have accused women of for, for years. Um, not taking our emotions seriously and, um, trying to keep us sort of quiet and demure and that kind of thing. So that's one aspect of it. Um, Then there's things like these diagnoses being used against us in medical settings, in courtroom settings, uh, to discredit what we're saying or to say that we're delusional, misremembering, um, being attention-seeking or manipulative, things like that. So yeah, there's multiple dimensions I feel like I could... I could talk about it for a while. <laughs>
0: well, I'm pretty sure that uh, your talk at Skeptocamp can be watched again oh. at some point. But you gave us a couple of statistics as well as to how that leads to misdiagnoses, uh, how that can lead to women not being actually diagnosed with severe illnesses because they're just dismissed offhand because of those psychological um, conditions that they diagnose with. Mm-hmm. So, how bad is the situation?
3: Um, well, I will say that I got many of my statistics from a book called Doing Harm. So I would recommend that for like more info on this subject. I'm not an expert, but it seems like many, many major physical disorders will take longer to be diagnosed in women than in men. Six out of 11 types of cancer, uh, brain tumors, um, some other ones I mentioned like Crohn's disease, uh, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And it's not because women take longer to visit a GP. If there's there's a delay from after the first visit to the GP, women will have to visit their doctor on average. I think it was five more times than a man will. Um, they have to wait longer overall to get a diagnosis, and they'll have to, yeah, make make more visits to the doctor. Um, because what one reason is suggested that, that, that the doctors simply don't take women's pain as seriously as men, and will yeah, put them on antidepressants, anti anxieties, tell them, you know, to have a rest and calm down and those sorts of things before giving them scans and the proper treatment they might need. So yeah, that's just one way in which uh, mental health diagnoses can be used against women.
0: What made you uh, start talking about that? Because I imagine you occasionally come across a bit of a pushback as well, uh, when you bring up those topics. So what made you do that?
3: (laughs) Um, well, what, what got me interested in this kind of subject? So I've, I've not had that particular problem that I was just talking about in terms of like having a, a physical health need, you know, not, not taken seriously by a doctor. That's, that's more something I've read about, but what I have had is in my life, um, times when I've been upset, anxious, distressed, or displayed you know, displayed kind of, uh, all sorts of emotions and behaviors um, as opposed to people looking at the wider context of my life and why those might things might have been coming up for me. I've been told I'm ill and I'm mad and, you know, I've been medicated and treated and those sorts of things. And I, I'm talking years ago, but at first I I was young when this happened to me and I just immediately put my trust in the professionals. I was like, well, they know what they're talking about. And I really internalized this idea that I was just, you know, fundamentally broken, that I was just born with a damaged brain or something in my childhood had damaged my brain. And that I would just be someone who struggled for the rest of my life and would always need treatment. And for me, my treatment always seemed to be uh, men who I had male doctors, I had male therapists, and um, even within that treatment itself, they're trying to, they're not, they can't understand your life uh, in the sense of what it's like to be a woman and the ways life is difficult moving through this sexist world as a woman. So that combined with many other things that I went through in my life. But ultimately, what I came to realize is the problem was not with me. I don't believe in i think giving these labels to people makes them internalize an idea that something is wrong with them as opposed to looking outside at society and thinking what might have caused you to feel this way act this way who is it that's trying to fix you what do they mean by fix what do they want you to be at the end of the day because i always felt like yeah i'm i'm a pretty unconventional person in a lot of ways and i think they were almost trying to beat that out of me and just get me back on the straight and narrow uh, suddenly like when i was in my late teens and early 20s when you don't want women to rebel and you know they kind of want wanted me to settle down and, you know, find a husband and have children and do that kind of thing, which has just never been something that has particularly appealed to me. So so that was like my own personal experience that led me to become interested in this topic. And then I have an academic background, which was that I I studied psychology. Uh, and then I went to study counseling. I thought that I wanted to be a therapist and help improve the lives of people. Uh, but then I kind of realized how pathologizing and like I was just saying, decontextualizing the whole endeavor seemed to be a lot of it was not scientifically based and I fell out of love with it and decided I actually wanted to study how we come up with these kind of diagnoses and these labels so I went and studied the philosophy of social science to also talk about how can we scientifically study things that are not so clearly objective and measurable such as someone's sadness right and anyway now so I'm uh, about to start my PhD now looking more specifically at the ways in which there are insidious sexist messages in mental health trends and marketing on social media as an example or in um, commercial brands and things like that So it's quite a long-winded answer but that's sort of how I got to where I am now.
0: But that's brilliant. And I cannot emphasize enough how important I see that you're talking about this with a lot of people. So good luck with the rest of it. And uh, I hope to see you again at some of these amazing events. Do you post about stuff that you do?
3: No, I don't. (laughs) To be honest, that one thing I didn't touch on was like, this is a controversial topic. And so far, I'm just trying to figure out how I can get my message across in the most effective yet sensitive way. And I know that other people who have tried to talk about this on social media platforms have received criticism and backlash. But I think that's because they weren't able to do it in a in a very sensitive way. So I'm not out there yet very much talking about this stuff. And also, I want to have done my research so I can give the proper statistics. So it's not just an opinion um, so no, I'm not really out there yet because I, I want to make sure that it can be just put out there in like a sensitive and effective manner. <laughs> yeah.
0: But I, I, think if you just wanted to test the waters, uh, like coming to Skeptic camp and to this weekend, I think it was a good choice. Do you agree?
3: Yeah, it seems to have been really well received. I was pleased about that. I did literally contact one of the organizers before I gave my talk. And I said, I'm really nervous, actually, because I've just realized my subject matter might be a bit touchy for some people. And I really don't want to upset anyone. But I also think it's an important message to get across. And he said to me, don't worry, I I think the audience is going to be really receptive to what you have to say. And he was right. Uh, Everyone has seemed to be really receptive. And I've had people coming up to me telling me that my talk has uh, really impacted them, really made them think about uh, some of their own experiences and things like that. So that's really amazing to hear.
0: I can second that. And, uh, well, again, good luck with your PhD and everything that you do. Sheena Weiss, thank you.
3: Thank you so much.
1: Okay, so one of the great things with QED is to meet old friends. But sometimes you also meet new friends. Actually, quite often you meet new friends. I've made a new friend. He is Norwegian. His name is Tor Öynes. I'm trying to pronounce that in my best fake Norwegian It's pretty Uh, good. (laughs) So uh, how did you come? Because this is your first QED, right? This is my first QED, yes. Yes. So how
4: did you find it? So um, I moved to Manchester about four years ago. At the time, I didn't know about... QED, but I was listening to several podcasts, one podcast led to another podcast, and so on, and uh, especially through uh, the ESP and Skeptics with a K. So it's my fault, Ben? It is your fault, yes, I'm
1: (laughs) I'm partially blaming you for this. Uh, Very good, very good. So what have you found most interesting so far? This is now on the Saturdays for people listening to this afterwards. So we've had the Skeptic Camp on Friday, we've had the first day of the proper QED, What's been most interesting so far?
4: Um, Of the talks, I would say the false memory one. Yeah. And also um, the one
1: regarding the the UFOs. Yeah, speaking Mm. of UFOs, that actually leads into another question. Because you're an airline pilot, right? Yes, that's true. Right. And um, there are uh, airline pilots that believe in UFOs, according to you. Yes, so...
4: One of the things I've found uh, working as a pilot is you know, I'm, I'm flying with a lot of people that I consider more intelligent than me and better pilots. But many of them are not skeptics. And that leads to them believing in a lot of things that I don't believe in. Uh, so they, they seem to believe in a lot of anti-vax things, uh, even the odd um, flat earther,
1: actually. Oh, um, really? As an airline pilot? Yes. They only fly the short distances then. <laughs> yes. And, <laughs> and not that high, probably. <laughs>
4: uh, but also, uh, also UFOs—it uh. it comes up odd. Yeah. And we do see things from time to time that is yeah. not necessarily easy to
1: explain. Yeah. And you've se- you've seen such things yourself?
4: Yes. I I've seen. Uh, the first thing I saw that was uh, that took me by surprise was the first time I saw Starlink. Mm-hmm. I had not seen it before. I did not mm. know. You didn't it, know
1: what it was at the time? No. no.
4: So I saw uh, one satellite and then suddenly there was something behind mm-hmm. it and something behind that again. And it just looked very unnatural. Huh. So so at the time I didn't know what it was. But after doing a little bit of digging, of course, it turned out to be Starlink. Yeah. Um, Another episode was a sudden massive light source in the sky. Uh, It sort of looked like a a huge flashlight. And we started hearing chatter on the the frequency. So it wasn't just
1: you seeing it, it was your colleagues and the other other planes as well. And people
4: were asking, what is this, what's going on? And of course, a lot of people immediately started thinking UFOs. Some of us, of course, started thinking about Rockets and you know
1: yeah.
4: human-made things, yeah. uh, and it turned out to be, uh, I believe, the one of the stages of a rocket that was being sent up, and it was the expanding gases we saw.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It could be rather spectacular. I yes. understand. Yeah. Yes. Yeah.
4: It took us all by surprise.
1: And and this is what you took f- photographs of. Yes. And and that you kindly shared with me. I, yes. I, I was very happy to see uh, a real uh, UFO. Uh, picture that I didn't see in the paper. It was actually by the person who saw that UFO. So I'm yes, very first-hand information there. First-hand <laughs> information with an explanation as yeah. well. Yes. How long did it take for you to find out what it was? Uh, it was pretty much the, the next day
4: mm-hmm. we figured out what it was. Yeah. Uh, and I don't remember the name of the rocket off of the top of my head, but... No. Uh,
1: yeah. Was it a, a European a Russian rocket, I, I
4: th- or I believe it was a SpaceX one? Oh, SpaceX. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cool. Yeah, I I find that a lot of a lot of pilots are interested, but they do not necessarily have the information needed to understand what it is. So they have seen things they can't explain that can be explained, yeah. and, and maybe they don't bother to find it out. No. I mean, no. yeah. Most people I find, though, um, with they you know, once they figure out what it is, um, they accept it. Yeah. But you have the odd one that will go. Will okay, not be convinced. Yeah. Okay. So that one was explained, and that one was explained, but this one could still be a UFO. Yeah. You know? uh,
1: All right. Okay. <laughs> so uh, where would where do you go when if you see a, th- a thing like this? How do you uh, investigate it? Where where do you go? Online searching for things.
4: Or? Yes. I usually start. Just by a Google search, because usually yeah. you can you can find out strange
1: light over this area, this <laughs> yeah. date. Anybody yeah. knows what it is. Yeah.
4: yeah, but I mean, these days you have uh, like persons like Mike West will have a lot of good information. So that is a person I would go to and see yeah. what he has to yeah, say yeah.
1: his YouTube channel is, is very yeah. popular and famous and extremely good yeah.
4: Yeah. yeah I'm very
1: impressed with his work he's very thorough very thorough <laughs> yeah. he goes really into details and explains everything okay very good thank you so much very happy to meet you Tor. That's, new friend I as I girl. said yes. and uh, we're looking forward to you're going to the Gala dinner today yes I am Yeah. so I- we'll see you there and I will see you there and uh, we will uh, see each other over the next day as well. Thanks a lot. Thank you. QED is
0: officially over, but a lot of us are hanging out around the bar area, including someone who, who are we having here?
5: Hello, my name is Ernesto Berger. Yeah, I'm one of the editors of the Guerrilla Skeptics in Wikipedia. I edit in Spanish normally, and also big fan and general assistant. I mean, I just wanted to come here. I live in Mexico, was born in Argentina, and was raised by a lovely, whoop peddling mom <laughs> hippie mom.
0: <Ooh. laughs> and you hold a Hungarian passport as well.
5: I actually have a Hungarian passport. My granddad escaped from a camp in World War II. Uh, I never got to meet him. He was an electrical engineer, so probably the way of thinking runs in the family. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's brilliant. So I understand this is your first time here at QED, right? Uh, so how long have you been planning to come?
5: Years and years. I mean, I have actually wanted to come at least for five years. Of course, in the middle was the leap year that the conference took, then COVID and all that. And yeah, I have to thank two things for, to actually being here. It's One is the girl skeptics in Wikipedia who kindly offered some support to the ones that, who wanted to come, of course, coming from mexico that doesn 't cover that much, but it really helps it makes a difference and Of course, my lovely wife who pushed me to come and say, like "Yeah, stop whining that you want to go, just go and that 's absolutely amazing I mean the reason i was I did manage to convince myself to that it was worth it, and it's been absolutely worth it it's it's amazing, the kindest possible people the most wonderful bunch of people and the most carefully organized to the smallest detail conference that i have ever seen it's amazing
0: i totally agree so are you coming back next year if you can
5: i have no idea it's (laughs) it will be mostly a budget issue so i will check if if i manage to do it otherwise i will probably join the online crowd that did manage it's not the same one of the best things is to actually be with these people mm-hmm. but i will try uh, for sure
0: any message that you want to send to susan Gerbic and the, the guerrilla skepticism
5: team uh, first a big thanks in multiple levels because it's also been the guerrilla Skepticism wikipedia i have said this more than once it has been a wonderful thing because it gave me an outlet to, be, to do something useful with all the, that rage, that things. And yes, this is also, a, if you think you can do something with like that, it's easier than you think. You can help contact Suzanne uh, or any of us and training is given. And to the rest, thanks, because they are also an amazing supporting community, people who are all around.
0: Well, it's been a pleasure uh, spending the the weekend uh, in in your presence as well. Very
5: nice to meet you, and thank you very much, Ernesto. Thanks to you, Andres, because you guys are also part of why I ended up being here too.
0: I'm glad to hear that. Thank you. Take care.
5: Thanks. Take care.
0: Okay, since we have recorded many short interviews, we would like to save a couple of them for future episodes. So I believe this was all that we had time for this week. And I'd like to thank you, Pontus. Thank you, Andras. <laughs> and it was great seeing you again in person, finally. Yeah. Because we, we rarely do that. Yeah. On the rare occasion, I'm I'm always happy to see you. Yeah. Likewise. And it was great seeing Annika, Luna, and uh, Scotty as well. Yes. But Um. It's it's just too sad that they came down with that, that terrible illness. I don't, I don't I just wish you guys a speedy recovery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The whole family. Yeah, yeah. The Harrisons get well soon. And I'd like to thank our listeners as well for tuning in. Please keep doing so and until next week goodbye hello bislaad
1: cheers
0: this has been your esp experience the show is produced and recorded by the esp.eu All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Rob, and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.thesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu, and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe
1: Aaron Rabba Aaron Rabenovich.
2: Okay. Uh, uh,
1: how about now then?
0: So, we have recorded a couple and uh, we would like to share it with you, um, our listeners, because. Uh, yes, we have recorded a couple of uh, interviews. Fuck you! <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what they gain by, by just honking Honking the horn for that long.